And I meet Christians who are shelved and they just seem at some point to lose all their desire to get things right, to put first things first. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. Today we complete part two of our three-part look at growing up in Christ. Over the past several days, from Hebrews chapters 5 and 6, we've looked at the importance of developing spiritual maturity in the lives of believers. Our passages have often been misunderstood, with some saying it's possible for a true believer to lose his or her salvation. Dr. Brogy has demonstrated that in actuality, the passage refers to God's decision to not use Christians who refuse to grow or who, having once been a thriving Christian, they chose to fall into spiritual laziness. The danger of no longer being used by God is that in so doing, those Christians will lose spiritual rewards once they are in heaven. We left off looking at Hebrews 6, verse 4, and Dr. Brogy noted that the word enlightened, which is used throughout the New Testament, always refers to believers. As we pick up, he addresses the word tasted and what it means within the same context. So in calling them people who have tasted of the heavenly gift, some say, well, this applies to an unbeliever. It can Again, you let Scripture interpret Scripture. Peter uses the same word to describe a believer. He said in 1 Peter 2, like newborn babes, crave pure spiritual milk. Here, milk is not being used like the writer of the Hebrews in deference to meat, but about the purity, about the absolute unadulterated truth of Scripture. Like a newborn baby, we are to crave pure spiritual milk, we might say the Bible, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. See the word tasted? It's the same word we just read, tasted of the heavenly gift. Now, again, there are some people who say, well, he's addressing lost people. And they argue, well, they've tasted of the heavenly gift. They just haven't eaten of it. They've had a sample, but not a full meal. But again, they've not carefully done their homework because the writer of the Hebrews himself uses this same word. For instance, in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9, he's describing the Lord Jesus. Listen, but we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste, same word, death for everyone, Giamai. Jesus didn't sample death. He tasted it in full. These Hebrew Christians had tasted of the heavenly gift. These were converted people. Look at the third characteristic in verse 4. Pay attention. If you're bored, it tells me you are a weak baby Christian and ask God to help you. Please ask him to help you. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers, partakers of the Holy Spirit, That's what it says. Now, those who say that, again, this passage refers to the unsaved and it's a warning to them, they say, well, they've been partakers in in the sense that they've been illuminated by the Holy Spirit. They've seen the truth of the gospel, but they haven't been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 
No, the word is used of someone who has a full participation in something. For instance, again by the writer of the Hebrews, and I could illustrate it in many other passages, but why not illustrate it by the writer himself because he's going to be consistent? He uses it to describe the incarnation of Christ. He says in Hebrews 2.14, Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also partook. Same word, just in verbal form. He partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. The Lord Jesus had a real and full sharing in our humanity. He wasn't part man. He was truly man, truly God, fully man, fully God. And so he's describing a full participation. Notice the fourth characteristic, and have tasted the good word of God. Here again, the word taste, same word in word in verse 4. It speaks of a full experience, not a sampling. Only a believer can fully appreciate the wonder and the goodness of the word of God. An unbeliever is repelled by it. But a believer sees it as the good and perfect will of God for his life. Then the final description, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Remember, these were believers who lived in the first century. There were witnesses of the foundational miracles that took place that will be reduplicated in the millennial age to come. They would have seen the miracle of tongues and interpretation of tongues and healings and miracles. As the church was established, God still does healing and miracles, but not the way he did it in the first century. Don't let these frauds and fakes on TV convince you otherwise. God has never consistently throughout biblical history done miracles. Adam never did a miracle. Enoch, the first prophet, never did a miracle. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, they never did miracles. The first miracles were done by Moses. And then for a short time through Joshua as they went into the promised land. Hundreds and hundreds of years went by again. No one did miracles. Until as we studied recently, Elijah the prophet and Elisha the prophet came on the scene. All those great prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, none of those men did miracles. Now some of them witnessed miracles. Daniel witnessed the miracles. He didn't do a miracle. Hundreds of years went by again and God does miracles in another cluster through Christ and his apostles. And once the canon of Scripture was finished and the message and the messenger was authenticated, a couple thousand years have gone by, and no one has done miracles the way they did in the first century. Don't let these lying frauds convince you otherwise. Like someone told me they were mad at me for preaching against Jimmy Swaggart. He's a lying fraud. He doesn't have the truth of the gospel. He may get you to cry, but he doesn't have the truth. All these fakes and frauds. But you see, people today have no discernment because they're baby Christians. It's very, very sad. But there's coming another cluster of miracles with the two witnesses, and God will do the miraculous again as we studied in the Revelation. So here are these people. They had, they had seen these foundational truths, but now they needed to move on. So he gives also the warning. This, the warning involves a fearful impossibility. Now, tighten your pew belt because we're going to hit some turbulence here in verse 6. It's probably the hardest verse in the whole section. And then, having experienced all these things, and then, having fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. 
since they again crucified themselves as Son of God and put him to open shame. Question, what does it mean to fall away? Well, I've already told you one position is someone who is born again and lost their salvation. And some will be consistent and they'll say that that person who lost their salvation is under an eternal curse and will only meet the fires of hell. But most Arminians, those who teach you can lose your salvation, don't teach that. They don't teach once lost, always lost. But that's what the text says. It is impossible. It doesn't say hard. It is impossible to renew them to repentance. And so these verses become a death knell to the Arminian position. They cannot refer to someone who came to salvation and then rejected and is lost forever, neither for that matter. Can it refer, because there are, again, brothers in Christ, and I love them, who say that this is a passage that is written to lost people as a warning. Well, it is true that there are what the Scripture calls an apostate, someone who walks to the edge of the kingdom. They understand the plan of salvation, but they've never met the man of salvation. And Jesus said in the final judgment, there'll be many like that, not a few, but many who are on the broad road who made all kinds of claims in the name of Christ. They did miracles. They cast out demons. They preached. But I never knew you. Not I once knew you. I never knew you. But an apostate is someone who walks to the edge. And every college president who runs a Christian school, every seminary president, every church leader needs to be careful because there are people who enter into the church who draw it away from its truth. That's what the whole book of Jude is about. They come in unnoticed. They look Christian. They talk Christian. But they're not. And they eventually apostatize, and we are seeing one pastor, one leader, one music, group after another, even in the last 24 months, who have departed from historic Christianity. How sad it is. But God said these things would happen at the ends of time, that men would apostatize, they would fall away from the faith. That's the word apostasia. That's not the word used here for fall away. It's the word pimto. In fact, on one occasion... It's applied to the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew chapter 26, where he fell on his face and he prayed. There there are actually many examples in the Bible of people who fell away but weren't lost. Peter fell that night and he suffered loss, but he was not lost. John Mark, he went south after the first missionary journey, but he was not lost. You can fall away without, quote-unquote, losing your salvation. And if you read the entire letter, these people were not in danger of saying, we hate Christ, we reject him, we made a mistake. Not at all. No, their problem was a warning of not standing up strong for Christ. In fact, why don't you turn back to Hebrews 2. There's no slide here, so you might want to go to Hebrews 2 for just a second. Hebrews, the second chapter. And again, Hebrews chapter 2 is kind of an interesting, it's one of the five, some count, six warning passages in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 2, notice how the chapter opens. For this reason, in light of the greatness of Christ that he's just described in chapter 1, who is to be worshipped because he's not an angel, he's God Almighty, greater than the angels, that the angels worship him. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. That's the problem, drifting. Are you a drifter? See, you can come here week after week, and you can be drifting on the inside. 
where your heart isn't getting warmer and more passionate for Christ and for lost people, but colder. They weren't paying attention to what had been preached to them. They were drifting. So he asked a question in verse 3. Look at it. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Please underscore what it does not say, because this passage has often been mispreached. He does not say, how shall we escape if we reject so great a salvation? But how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And that was their problem. They should have been maturing, but they were neglecting the great salvation. So to stir them up, look at chapter 3. Look at chapter 3 in verse uh, 12. I want you to notice he gives an illustration from the Old Testament when God delivered the Jewish people out of Egypt. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you. He's talking to brethren, born-again people. Lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away. Same word from the living God. Then look at verse 16 of chapter 3. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Yes, they provoked God. And with whom was he God angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Yes, it was. And to whom did he swear they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Now, these verses, he's dipping back into the Old Testament where God, by his mighty, omnipotent arm with blood, brought them out of Egypt. He did all these magnificent miracles. He split the uh, Red Sea in two. He provided supernatural food and supernatural water. And a trip that should have taken 11 days took 40 years. They lost their way, not because they lost their map, but because they lost perspective. They had become dull in their hearing. And so remember what God said in Numbers chapter 13. Here's the command God gave to Moses. Listen to it. And this is the text, by the way, that he's referencing. If you've studied Hebrews 3 and 4. Send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, everyone a leader among them. And so if you remember, they come to the edge of the promised land. They're at Kadesh Barnea. And God sends, uh, through his instruction, 12 spies into the land. Not to see if they could take it. God promised the land. But here's a beautiful picture between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. So they were to go in and spy out the land. And when the 12 spies came back, the people with their dull ears believed the majority report instead of believing the promises of God. Two of the 12 spies came back, Joshua and Caleb, with a different kind of report. They said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. But the other 10 spies, the majority, Moses records of them, but the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people. They are too strong for us. They're like giants. We're like grasshoppers. Their cities are well fortified. It's impossible we can't do it. Now, notice how the people responded. It's recorded in Numbers 14. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness? And why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? 
our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. And in the words of Hebrews chapter 4, having just cited this example, he says, the word they heard did not profit them. Why? Because it was not united by faith in those who heard. They could not press on. God said, they will not enter my rest. Now, it didn't mean that in the sense that this sense they fell away, that they died and went to hell. No, they were redeemed with precious blood of a lamb, prefiguring what the Messiah would do. And if you read the Exodus carefully, you will discover that the saints in Moses' day had the exact same five advantages that these Hebrew Christians had in the first century. They too had once been enlightened. They understood the meaning of the gospel as found in the Passover, that redemption comes through blood. They too had tasted of the heavenly gift as they ate the manna. They too had become partakers of the Holy Spirit as seen in the water that came out of the rock. They too had tasted the good word of God when Moses stood up and preached the word of God. And they saw the powers of the age to come as God did the miraculous through Moses, but in spite of all these privileges, they didn't press on into the promised land. They missed God's best because of their dullness of hearing, because the word of God was not mixed with faith. Now remember, they were redeemed people. They were a pardoned people. Moses, when he's concerned for the state of the people, God said to Moses in Numbers 14 and verse 20, I have pardoned them according to your word. God forgave them, but they suffered the consequences for 40 years. The next day when Moses said, God's not going to let you go up, what did they want to do? We're sorry, Moses. Tell God we were wrong. We repent. And with tears, they attempt to go into the promised land and they are slaughtered. They missed God's window because of a decision they made. Now, let me bring it back here to Hebrews 6. These Hebrew Jewish Christians were at a Kadesh Barnea of sorts. They were going to have to make a decision to go on to maturity or they wouldn't be able to go on to maturity. You see, repentance allows the believer to come back to the place of God's blessing. You can't repent on your terms. You repent on God's terms. And don't think that you can flirt and flirt and flirt with sin, and when you get around to it, that you're going to make everything right. It doesn't work that way. And because of their disobedience, because of their callousness of heart, God said, potentially, they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Remember, these are Hebrew believers who didn't want to go back, uh, to go forward and, and be persecuted by their fellow Jews. And so every time they brought an animal or some sacrifice or they jumped through one of the mosaic hoops, they were basically saying what Jesus did was meaningless and insufficient. The day before the crucifixion, it would have been totally acceptable. But the day after, it was totally meaningless because the reality of the shadows had been fulfilled. What they were doing was not some small thing. It was a wicked thing. The same happens today to believers with family and friends. 
They refuse to go on. They don't like the pressure. They don't like the kickback by parents or grandparents or a spouse or people at work. And so they're just kind of silent Christians. And they don't go on. They don't want to get too radical for Jesus. And you can reach a point where it's impossible to renew them to repentance. Like Israel of all, they are shelved. And I meet Christians who are shelved, and they just seem at some point to lose all their desire to get things right, to put first things first. Notice also this warning involves a final evaluation. This warning involves a final evaluation. You see, to those who say that this is a passage exhorting the lost to get saved, there's an assumption that the word repentance here in this context is in reference to salvation, but it's not. It's in reference to sanctification. The phrase renewed to repentance tells me they had already repented once. And sometimes God asks saved people to repent. We studied it in the seven churches in the Revelation that Jesus wrote a letter to. And so verses 7 and 8 are not talking about the root of salvation. It's speaking of the fruit of salvation. He's not speaking of salvation, but as verse 10 will point out, about the things that accompany salvation. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. He's describing the, the fruit of someone who's pressing on to maturity. By contrast, verse 8, but if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Not in the fires of hell, but the fire of judgment. There's a judgment. It's the judgment of, 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 the, of the just. It's the judgment seat of Christ, where every man's work will be tested by fire, be it wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, precious stones, and every man's work will become evident, Paul says, because the fire itself will test the quality of every man's work. If his work remains, he'll receive a reward. If his work is burned up, he'll suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so is through fire. Please notice it. Three times in verse 8, the word it. It yields thorns and thistles. It is worthless and close to being cursed. And it ends up being burned. He's referring back to the vegetation here in verse 7. The life doesn't end up being burned, but the service does. And at the judgment seat of Christ, there'll be great sadness. Now, let me try to apply this as we close our time off. Number one, a life not counting for Christ produces worthless fruit. A life stops that stops counting for Christ moves into the realm of shipwreck, and they produce worthless fruit. A believer who cannot be renewed to repentance, in the words of the Apostle Paul, where he gives an example of two men in 1 Timothy, are shipwrecked in the faith. We have Christians who say they love God, but they don't really revere God. Because we live in a day of soft grace where many think they can live consequence-free lives because they've been saved. And sadly, in the American evangelical church, we've lost our fear of God. And I've met Christians over the decades. I just can't seem to help them. As best I know, they're saved. But I just can't seem to help them. And they've gotten to the point where it's impossible to renew them to repentance. 
God put them up on a shelf. You think, well, I'll, I'll, I'll get right with God when I get around to it. That is a distorted view of a holy, righteous God and the way that he deals with his people. And I would urge you today that if in your heart there is still an urge to get right and you know you've drifted and your heart is far away, get it right before the day is over, before this meeting is over. Because there can come a time where it will be too late. And let me say, if you are not a Christian, what we're speaking about this morning is not neglecting salvation few, but rejecting salvation. And I assume that if you're here or you're listening to this broadcast somewhere in the world, your heart is open. But if you don't know that heaven is your home, that if you died in the next 60 seconds, you would be walking on streets of gold, you need to settle that issue. Because the Spirit of God will not always strive with you. He deals consistently, both with believers and unbelievers. You say, well, pastor, I've got some problems in my life, and I'm going to get them all straightened out. When I get them all straightened out, I'll become a Christian. If you reason that way, you'll never become a Christian. Because you can't straighten out all your problems. The one who sins becomes a slave of sin. You say, well, when I get around to it, no, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. And if you have an openness of heart today, you didn't manufacture that on your own. God put it there. But you as a free moral agent can say no. But you can reach a point where that no will become an eternal no. And you will remember this sermon a hundred billion years from today in hell. Now, Father, we know you've given us this passage. For those of us who've met you, that we can't flippantly do what we want to do. That like Isaiah of old, when he had a picture of what you're like, all he could say was, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And we thank you that in every respect, you are a faithful God, faithful even to your righteousness and the way that you discipline your people. So I pray today for some dear brother or sister in Christ who's been adrift, help them to realize that you and your divine discipline can at some point let them go where they are shelved in a castaway believer. Help them to realize the seriousness of what they are doing. Thank you that you secure us, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. But help us to understand the grace of God that brings salvation more deeply, that we might deny worldliness and ungodliness and seek with a sense of zealous, zealous zeal to live holy and righteously in this age. I pray today for that person listening who is not saved, that today would be a turning point, that they would see that before you they fall short of your glory, that they can never do anything to make it right. May they call upon Christ and put their faith where you put their sin on him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen again to today's study, part two of our series, Growing Up in Christ, or if you missed part one, both can be found on the Search the Scriptures app or online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 
and requesting program GIC1 or today's message GIC2. Things are looking good for international travel as cases of the coronavirus are on the decline and vaccination is on the rise. Consequently, we're planning two trips to Israel in early and mid-October led by Dr. Brogy. The Bible will literally come to life as we visit so many locations you may have only read about. Join us as we go to Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and Getty, the Dead Sea, and the Mount of Beatitudes, just to name a few. Details are online at stsisraeltour.com. We hope you'll join us. Tomorrow we begin part three of our three-part series, Growing Up in Christ. Join us then as we search the scriptures. <music>